Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for tuning in to the New Books Network in Fantasy today. This is your host, Gabrielle Matthew. I'll be talking to Bradley Bowler about the Dragons of Deepwood Fen, the first in a new series by Bradley. So, Bradley, I've got Bradley Bowler on to discuss Dragons of Deepwood Fen. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. You're welcome. So, we'll start right off with the questions. Your novel, which is in the first in the series, it has eight points of view. And I thought rather a complicated story. It's a daunting task to become oriented at first in a brand new fantasy world. And initially you demand a lot of your readers. Was your decision to approach the narrative this way based on the knowledge that you have a dedicated fan base? Or did the story simply demand to be told this way? So, um, first I'll say that uh, I initially wanted to focus on a couple of characters, and they are the main characters in Mm -hmm. my mind. Um, There are a few others that um, provide different points of view, but the the main characters are Lorelai Aurelius, who is an inquisitor, uh, detective, a Sherlock Holmes type of character who is a bit quirky. She has agoraphobia, um, which presents some problems in the course of her work, but she's also extremely intuitive, very smart, very quick, and very dogged about trying to solve the mysteries that she's given in the course of her work. Uh, and in the course of that work, she comes across Ryland Holbrook, who is he's the uh, bastard son of the Imperator of the Holt. And the Holt is a vassal state of this Roman-style empire. They're semi-independent, but they are um, largely controlled by the empire. And the empire kind of uses that, uh, throws its weight around uh, quite a bit. Uh, and Ryland, we learn, loses his foster father to the empire. His uh, uncle, Beckett, was burned uh, by a dragon uh, for the crime of teaching Rylan how to bond uh, with dragons. And so his uncle Beckett had a bond with a dragon. Uh, that dragon had a couple of kits, and he was teaching Rylan how to bond, and they were both caught. And Rylan was nearly killed along with him. He ended up losing a finger. His uncle Beckett ended up losing his life. Uh, and so he eventually decides to become a thief. Um, and his main goal is to sort of right the balance um, uh, a bit uh, between the Holt and the Empire. So he steals from the Empire, essentially. He's kind of a Robin Hood type of figure. Um, and so uh, Lorelai comes across as frail. And they, they both, from different angles, end up um, looking into this mystery of why two particular characters, uh, the Hissing Man, who is a leader of a religious cult called the chosen and they are they're part of the empire what they want is a theocracy essentially instead of an empire ruled by uh quintarchs these five ruling emperors in essence uh and the man he meets with is eric bloodhaven who is the leader of the red knives a group of freedom fighters who want to liberate the holt essentially from the empire uh and so 
a very unlikely alliance, and neither Lorelai nor Rylan knows why these two are meeting and what they're planning to do. And so that kind of sets the, the ball rolling a bit. Um, and why I added more characters along the way is because I felt like, and this has been true of my other novels as well, um, I, I, I do want to show some of the other side of the story, some of some of the intrigue, some of the, the political machinations that are going on with um, with other parts of the story. And so it, it is a fairly big world uh, with uh, a lot of characters, a lot of a lot of things going on. But at the, at the heart of it is this mystery of what the Hissing Man and Eric Bloodhaven are trying to do, why they're meeting, what it means for the city of Anchorage where Lorelai lives, what it means for the whole, so that sort of thing. Uh, and so um, the other main character, I would say, along with Lorelai and Rylan, are, uh, is uh, uh, Rhiannon. Uh, Rhiannon is, the, is related to Eric Bloodhaven. She's related to Lorne, uh, who is Eric's brother. That's her uncle. Uh, and her mother, Moraine Bloodhaven, died a number of years ago when she was young. Uh, and Moraine figures into this tale as well. And so uh, Rhiannon is kind of our, our window into the Red Knives and what they're doing. And and so largely that's kind of what I'm doing. It's like giving, giving uh, characters um, a voice and, and a sort of a proxy for the different major players in this tale. Uh, and so kind of swinging back to your question, I, you know, I never really plan on any any number of points of view exactly uh, beyond a couple of main characters. And then I let things go uh, from there. And <laughs> just to give you kind of an idea how, how uh, this can spin out of, out of, not out of control exactly, but just like become wider. In my previous um, epic fantasy series, The Song of the Shattered Sands, I started writing that book with the idea that I would tell an epic fantasy from a single point of view, the woman, the swordswoman, Cheda, uh, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't, at least it wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling to me, uh, to, to do it with one POV, and it ended up being a similar kind of story with a number of POVs and such, and, and that happened here again, I started with Rylan and Lorelai thinking I'll, I'll stay tight to them, it will be, you know, fairly concise in terms of viewpoint, you know, if not scope of, of tale, and it, it just expanded because I felt like I wanted to give the viewer more yeah, more points of view, more intrigue, more mystery about what's happening in this larger scope scale uh, story. So you discussed your uh, three main characters, and uh, let's focus in on Rhiannon right now. Uh, she's in a Holt. She's not active in the Red Knives when we meet her, but her ambitious and ruthless Uncle Warren pulls her in, I think after reading about her and her mother who dies, but not forever, <laughs> I would say that their family <laughs> suffers from intergenerational trauma at the hands of the Empire. Lauren wants to bring the Empire down, no matter what the cost, but not all the Red Knives see things his way. And, you know, there was different perspectives we could take about Lauren and his contingent of the Red Knives. Uh, the Empire views them as drug-dealing terrorists, and they do deal drugs, but from another perspective, they're freedom fighters, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are, what, what becomes clear in the book is that 
Uh, Eric has named himself the King of the Wood, uh, and not just named himself, that is a title that he has inherited in essence. The, the last real King of the Wood was Y in one hand, a legendary figure among the Red Knives. He was the, the final king before the, the Empire a couple hundred years ago, uh, waged a, a furious war, uh, over several generations to, to sort of defeat, uh, the, the Holt as a power, um, and that's when they became this vassal state of the Empire. Uh, but people never gave up completely on the idea that the Holt should be independent, and so uh, both um, Eric and Lorne are descendants of Wyan, and so is Moraine, uh, Rhiannon's mother. And so the, in, in different ways, they had ideas of how they would um, deal with the Empire and, and deal with their, uh, you know, meddlesome controlling ways over the Holt and try to gain independence. Uh, and so as the story opens, Eric, uh, who was pretty bloodthirsty at one point, has come to see that violence begets more violence and, and the cycle may never end. And so he decides that, that peace could be a possible path uh, instead of uh, constant violence and waging, trying to wage war against the Empire. Uh, and he, he kind of knows that Lorne wouldn't like this and hides it from him. And so his plan for peace uh, is is troublesome in the Red Knives. Um, and there are certainly people that view things the way Eric do, but there are plenty that view things the way Lorne does as well. And Rhiannon gets kind of caught in the middle, as does Rylan. Uh, Rylan gets... Um, um, uh, involved with Eric. Uh, Eric asks him to do some things in the city of Ancris where Lorelai lives, uh, and uh, Rylan, who is the, the bastard son of the Imperator, uh, and, and again, the Imperator is the leader of the whole, but he's kind of beholden to the Empire as a whole. Uh, and so he's in a unique position, Rylan. Uh, he, you know, touches on uh, people in power. He, he goes to the Empire. He is a, he's not just bonded with a dragon. He is a dragon singer. Um, and so he kind of helps dragons to uh, overcome intemperance, to train them, to help them as they near end of life, uh, different things like that. And so he has access to certain places that people like Eric and Lauren do not. And that's why uh, Eric recruits him. Uh, and so yeah, the the whole notion of of the red knives is a is a complicated one, and, and I I don't like uh, exploring groups any large group like that and making them monolithic because it's just not realistic. You know, there there will be people. I mean, you get any two people <laughs> on a single viewpoint, and they they may agree a lot, but they won't agree completely. You know, and, and blow that up to a hundred people, five hundred, a thousand more, you certainly have differences of opinion about how things should move forward. And that's kind of exemplified in, in both Eric and Lauren. Um, and, and then Moraine comes into the picture as well. So she has passed. She is Rhiannon's mother. Uh, but in the Holt, in this world, there's the concept of wisps. So you're, after you die, your soul can be sort of, sort of reborn. So it's, it's kind of a ghost, uh, type of thing, but it's, you know, it's like a little mm, traveling, wandering um, point of light, you know, and that, and that is your soul after after it's left your body. And, and the idea is that it will one day rise to the heavens or or sink under the weight of its sins to the, to the seven hells of Karos. Uh, and so 
there is uh, uh, there are things like ghosts, reincarnation, um, you know, ghouls, you know, zombies, you know, that type of thing in the world. Uh, and so Lauren's plan is to to raise Moraine uh, and use her and and have her I don't know see her own vision of defeating the Empire uh, be um, fulfilled. And of course, Rhiannon is caught in between all of these things with Eric, Lorne, and her, her mother Moraine. Um, and so it's, and she's kind of an innocent soul. She was given over to a uh, an abbey. Um, she's raised as a druid. She learns how to use her power through that. Um, but um, she didn't have a lot of influence from Eric or Lorne or her mother, you know, as she was growing up. And so she, she's kind of, you know, she's a bit bright-eyed. She's not. Um, she hasn't received all this propaganda that she might have if she stayed with her mother uh, or w- with Erica Lauren. And, and so she was kind of an interesting character to, I don't know, view this conflict through. You know, she she maybe sees it with uh, more clear eyes than even, you know, Eric, Lauren, or Ryland do. You know, so, yeah, it was um, – uh, the Red Knives are interesting. It's interesting to me to look, to look at, at groups like that and, and dig into them, and they're not – always what they seem on the surface. Well, so we talked about Moraine a couple of times now, Rhiannon's mother, who was dead, but uh, a part of her continued on as well, the Wisp. And I noticed Wisps are referred to, it seems like they're at different stages. I was kind of curious about that. They're Wisp lights, just used to illuminate places. I don't know if those are actual, like, little ghosts that are discontinuing, and then there's quickening a wisp, which one of the characters offers to do for a desolate mother, or the wisp can be completely resurrected, which is actually forbidden. So can you tell us a bit about the the difference in these progressions there? Yeah, sure. The so the um, <clears throat> I intimate in the in the book, and, and it's true that the that that effect uh, of uh, the creation of a wisp happens in the Holt, and the Holt is a very a very special place on this world. Uh, it has these gigantic citadel trees that um, they're, they're kind of redwood style, but even larger. They're sort of in, interconnected, um, and they are um, a colony tree. Uh, like uh, I, can't, I can't remember if the name is. Pando, uh, the, the one in Lake Utah area, the Aspens. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is sort of related to what, what wisps are. And so when people die, their souls kind of remain in their body. And after a certain amount of time, you know, it could it could be a um, dozen years, a couple dozen. It could be centuries before their wisp rises and then sort of wanders the Holt. And when the Empire first came to the Holt and saw these things, they thought... <laughs> These would be useful to us, the Empire. Uh, it, was, it was a grave insult to, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the people of the whole, the kin, to do so, but they didn't really care. And so they kind of collected these things as resources. Um, and so that's one kind of wisp, these sort of, I don't know, free-floating wisps that have been there for, you know, centuries before, again, either rising to heaven or, or sinking to hell. Um, and... Um, so that's sort of the natural way of things. Uh, and then wisps can also be quickened. Um, and so that's kind of forcing a wisp, a soul, to leave its body before it's ready. Um, and so the 
the kin kind of learned how, how to do that. The, the druids that they have are, are like the, the typical druid um, from our world. Uh, they sort of commune with nature. They have spells that kind of deal with that type of thing. <clears throat> and so they did learn how to do that, but didn't really use that very often. And when the Empire learned how to do the same thing, uh, they occasionally quickened wisps when they wanted to, say, take a trophy, like of wine one hand, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did it to him and kept it as a, a trophy, in essence, of, of war. Um, and so that's, again, an insult, but it's done on occasion. Uh, and in um, Moraine's case, uh, one of the war leaders who who um, found her and uh, sent men to find her, uh, um, hung her eventually, quickened her wisp and stole it, uh, took it to his estate in the mountains away from the, the forest. And Lorne and Eric are both extremely enraged you know, about that. And Lorne wants to do something about it. Um, and he knows he needs Moraine because she was a very powerful druin. Uh, and so he... Uh, brings Rylan into his machinations, his plans, by asking him to steal that wisp. And he tells them it's only because he wants it, he wants it back. He wants it back in the family. He wants to give it to Rhiannon so that she has um, not just a remembrance of her mother, but kind of her mother. <laughs> um, and so Rylan eventually does that, and it sets into motion a chain of events that lead to him going to Ancris, him getting involved uh, with Lorelai and starting to understand what's going on with Eric and um, the Chosen and the Hissing Man and their plans for the city. Um, and so, um, so yeah, those are kind of, and, and then a wisp can be, if, if they have the body, they can uh, resurrect someone um, into a draugr. Uh, so it's a, a zombie-like creature or a lich uh, sort of thing. And so that's that's not done very often, but in in this case, it was done because Lorne needs Moraine so much to finish, you know, what he's planning. Uh, so yeah, so that's kind of a, a little bit of a taste of uh, the magic and wisps in this world. You know, one thing that puzzled me: you've mentioned the druids; they uh, lived in the Holt before the Empire came, and I assume at that time the druids were mostly kin. And they're somewhat like the Druids. They have a relationship with nature. And the church belongs to the empire. But uh, even though they belong to different cultural groups, they all worship Aura, at least officially. So how did that happen if the Druids actually belong to the Holt? Were they forced? Yeah, so... um... So the um, the druids, the the kin themselves are um, the people, uh, and they they were actually a, a persecuted race that eventually fled uh, to the hold and settled there. Um, and the the empire was initially kind of this loose collection of of five uh, different different groups that that kind of unified under a single banner, uh, which is why there are five ruling quintarchs of this empire. Um, and when they um, they settled um, in this this area of the the Holt and the mountains that surround it, and the sort of the main settlements were these shrines, five shrines that contain um, pieces of Alra's heartstone. And so in in the story, there was this this 
climactic battle a millennia ago um, that uh, in which Alra fought the dark god Phaedron. And Alra eventually sacrificed herself to bring Phaedron down, and Phaedron is still alive. He is trapped in a, a prison in the center of the hold called the Umbral Tree. And so Alra is gone, but pieces of her remained. And so a lot of focus around um, her sacrifice, uh, the ruining itself, this, this big battle and war between these two gods, um, and what the, the followers of Alra did uh, after she sacrificed herself uh, to bring Phaedron down. Um, and so the, both the kin um, who arrived in the Holt after that happened and the Empire who arrived after the kin um, sort of inherited some of that. Not, not some of that. They inher- well, they inherited the history of Alra and Phaedron. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Phaedron's presence is still, it's still felt. He's there, um, and he's being watched over by a particular paragon of Alra, a follower of Alra called Yeriel. Uh, and so that's, uh, we find out what some of uh, the Hissing Man's and Lorne's plans revolve around. Um, I won't go into detail to avoid spoilers, but um, so so both the the kin and the druids inherit, um, you know, this notion of Alra as this goddess of light, um, Phaedron as this dark trickster god, uh, and when the empire sort of forms fully, um, the, the kin were very um, open and welcoming initially, and so they shared some of their faith, they shared some of their teachings, and so the the empire mm, accepted that <laughs> willingly and at the time with thanks, but they eventually grew kind of power hungry. And so what what you find in the story is that um, the Church of, of Aura, which is part of the Empire, has um, shepherds and they have priests. Uh, and they, again, they inherited a lot of their belief systems from the Kin and the Druids. And so there's a very close relationship between the two, uh, but the Church won't recognize that. Um, they, they won't say that openly. Even though historians know it to be true, the Druids know it to be true. Um, so there are similarities. And I, I had, you know, it, it's interesting to me how that sort of thing changes, uh, how we inherit things from different, how different religions inherit things from other religions, that sort of thing. And so I do want to explore that a little bit in this story. And, and so that's how those two are related. So, yeah, you mentioned that the Empire actually learned from the kin, the people of the Holt, and uh, then they took a different approach to things. So let's talk about the dragons, since they're in the title. (laughs) Uh, The -hmm. people of the Holt and the Empire also have a different approach to dragons. The Empire learned how to bond to dragons from the people of the Holt. But how did that change how did the Empire's approach change over time, and what does that say about them? Uh, yeah, so the, this is um, one of the funnest things for me to write about. I, I knew I wanted to write a, a dragon-based story for a while and, and didn't really, for years, you know, know how, what my spin on it was going to be. And, it, and it, um, in, in this story, I think I, I found something that at least I enjoy. I hope other people do, too. And so there's this notion of, um, two heavenly bodies. Uh, one is called the bright sun, Lux. The other one is called the dark sun, Nox. Um, and they each 
shed a different form of magic. So there's Aura and Umbra from Lux and Nox. And so they shine at night, the, the, the planet, this world is sort of caught in stasis between these two heavenly bodies. Um, and so during the day, Aura shines down, and plants and animals can absorb Aura. Um, and the same thing happens at night. Certain types of plants and animals thrive on Umbra. And so there are radiant dragons, which kind of feed off of Aura, and, and, and they live largely in the mountains and beyond. And then there are umbral dragons, which feed on umbra, and they live in the forest and lowlands, that kind of thing. Um, and so the, the kin initially learned how to bond with dragons, and a bond is something that is very close. You know, it would be akin to um, what we might have with um, a you know, a dog that you form over time. There's a very tight relationship between, you know, the, the pet owner and the pet themselves. Um, you know, it's it's quite emotional. Um, and um, that has deepened a little bit in, in the this world where the bond uh, allows both bond mates, dragon and human, to sort of trade, trade thoughts, trade emotions, sometimes trade viewpoints. Like Ryland can sometimes see what his dragon sees, not always, but sometimes. Um, and so the the kin, as a show of friendship, when the empire first arrived, showed them how to bond. Um, and in fact, the empire did do that for quite some time. Uh, but I have this another. Uh, I have another notion of magic. Uh, I just use an alchemical sort of magic system. And the the uh, alchemists in the empire learned how to use these fallen star stones um, to create crops and fetters, which allow them um, to bind a dragon instead of bond with a dragon. And the trouble was that not everybody can bond uh, with dragons. It's, it's a difficult thing to do. You have to learn how to do it, and it's, it's, it's tricky. And some people just plain cannot do it. And so the empire wanted to expand. Uh, they wanted to use dragons in war. Um, and to do that, they needed more, a more uh, reliable way of using dragons, and that was binding in the end. Um, and so they, they used these crops and fetters. The dragon riders hold the one stone called the crop. The fetter um, is in a bridle that sits on the dragon's forehead, essentially. Um, and, and they can issue commands um, to the dragons, and it's just a way more reliable way to, to to control the dragons, but it's also much less uh, emotional. They, they don't have a close bond with the dragon. They can't feel emotions from them. Um, it, it's just a much more shallow sort of relationship. Um, and so yet another insult the Empire levied against the, the kin um, led to a lot of acrimony, acrimony between the two, two peoples. Um, and so... Uh, as, as we get towards, you know, the story opening, um, we, we sort of see the, uh, the bonding of dragons uh, through Rylan because he is bonded to Vedron, who is a Viridian dragon. Um, and so we kind of see that type of relationship through, through him. And um, one thing to understand, I suppose, is that the umbral dragons were kind of resistant to these crops and fetters, these stones. Uh, and so the Empire couldn't really use them. They used the Radiant Dragons instead, which were a lot easier to control with them. Uh, and so they ended up, the Empire ended up um, sort of
sort of labeling the the umbral dragons as as unclean as servants of phaedron um and and use that as a way to justify trying to eradicate them they wanted only radiance to be you know around and available and and so um part of why they did that as well is because uh the red knives were using umbral dragons because they had easy access to them uh and so as the story opens, there are there are fewer and fewer Umbral Dragons left. Um, through Rylan, we see the bond he has with Vedron. And through Lorelei, we see binding. Um, and, you know, Lorelei inherited, you know, the, her view of binding. You know, it's just kind of a necessary thing. It's just how you do things. You, you, you break a horse and you put a, uh, you know, reins and saddle on them and you ride them. And... For a dragon, you bind them with crop and fetter, and you ride them and use them in service of the empire. Um, and so we kind of see some of that history uh, through her. Um, and it's uh, obviously it's you know it's, it's it's the view of things now. And over time, I start to um, sort of show how those things came about and what they mean. And so the it, it was kind of interesting to um, to to see in my own mind like umbrals be, sort of became a sign of the oppressed and radiant dragons became signs of the powerful and the privileged. Um, and so that, yeah, that was kind of interesting to, to play with over, over time. And then the last thing I'll say about them is that there are different styles. I mean, I, I really adored um, the Dragonlance Chronicles in, in high school time frame. D&D, I played a lot, different uh, game systems that used uh, different types of dragons. So there are different types of dragons. So in the Radiance, there are silvers and brasses and golds and enduriums. This endurium is a, a special element in my world. And then the umbrals, there are onyxes, viridians, auburns, uh, ambers. Um, and they each have different powers. Um, and um, and they, uh, they all have a special scale called a, luc- a lucerta uh, that allows humans to, to sort of inherit a little bit of their magic as well. Um, uh, so, yeah, that's just a little taste of the dragons. It's, it was really fun to play with in the story. Well, last question. Your novel deals with political intrigue and warring factions, yet there were no descriptions of actual violence or sex. What led to your decision to make your books kid-friendly, even though the plot is complicated and may be more suitable for adults? Um, well, so certainly early on there, there isn't much, and I don't go, um, violence heavy and I, and probably this year that I won't go too, you know, um, too much into that. Although this is clearly leading as we, um, I won't give away spoilers, but as we get towards the end of the book, the stakes are raised, um, things get more serious. People are more willing to, (laughs) to do, uh, to, to commit violence to get what they need. Um, and, um, and that will continue as time goes on because this is the beginning of, um, a, a lot, a large unfolding plot, uh, about the very gods that we talked about a little, little while ago. Uh, so one of my favorite things to explore in stories is, um, it's not just the, the, the history, but this notion that history is twisted over time and people forget what really happened. And sometimes that's because things were just passed down and you played the telephone game and, and things change over time. Mm-hmm. And other times it's because there was a concerted effort to hide the truth. 
um, and and maybe accentuate other things that either either happened or didn't happen, sort of replace history with a, a different version of it. Um, and sometimes that can lead to severe consequences. And it does in a lot of my stories, and it, and it certainly does here. The, the, the people of the story, everybody, um, have forgotten what really happened in the ruining with Alra and Phaedron, um, and they're going to be reminded of that in, in fairly rude fashion fairly soon. And so we, we get a, a bare glimpse of it in the first book. Um, and right now I'm working on the second book, which tentatively titled A God of Countless Guises. Um, and I'm starting to dig a bit more into, into Phaedron and, and what his plans are specifically. Um, and then we'll, we'll start getting into what really happened with Alra and the ruining and the paragons. The paragons are, are, um, touted as followers of Alra, um, and who helped her defeat Phaedron in the ruining. Um, and that is not exactly true. And so, you know, who they are and what role they actually played in that climactic battle so long ago will start to be revealed as well. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really fun in the second book and will continue to be fun to sort of unwrap that mystery, you know, and see what the characters do with it. Okay, so there'll be a little more violence, but it's basically kid-friendly just because that's the way you write. It sounds like you're really more interested in the historical events and the way all the parts fit together than any kind of visceral depiction of violence, which is which I think is great. So you mentioned that you're working on a second book. Um, how can people keep up with you the best way? Should they go to your website? Um, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, uh, I'm active on uh, Twitter, Instagram, a little bit on Facebook, uh, but the best way to find me is just follow, uh, go to my website, which is quillings.com, uh, and that has my socials on there. You can you can hop over there and follow me on those other uh, platforms. I post on, on my website as well, the uh, blog on there, um, and there's also a contact page, so if you ever have uh, questions about anything, um, uh, about the books uh, and an online store where I sign my uh, books with a, a special calligraphy signature and, and ship them out to you. So you can check that out as well. Well, thanks so much for taking time out of your writing day to chat with us, Brad. Yeah, thanks so much, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.